I'm Jamie Wheeler. When my daughter, who has autism, turned 18, the programs we depended on suddenly stopped, although her needs did not. So I started Austin's Autistic Adventures, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering autistic adults and their families. Much like our nonprofit, this podcast aims to spark candid conversations and build community. Welcome to Autism Unplugged. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Autism Unplugged. My name is Jamie Wheeler, and I'm your host. And today with me is Laura Likes, who has been on the program before. Her son, Harry, was a founding member of our program, Austin's Autistic Adventures. I am also joined today by Mike Christian of From the Future, a virtual reality company that is endeavoring to help people on the spectrum, as well as Christopher Brown from Bright Mosaic. Thank you all for being here. And today our topic is going to be the uses of virtual reality for people on the spectrum. So, um, Mike, I guess I'll let you go first. Can you tell me how your company became interested in helping people on the spectrum? Sure. Um, But first, I'd like to say thanks for having me. This is a, a real pleasure. Um, yeah, it's, it's been many years and there's actually two events that happened. Uh, and I'm not sure which came first. Uh, one was, I was listening to NPR being the NPR junkie that I am. And there was an episode, uh, featuring Owen Suskind and you, you all might be familiar with his story, but he had autism to the point where he couldn't communicate as a kid. Long story short, Disney was a way that his parents used to communicate to him through a puppet. And as he got older and was able to communicate more, he explained that cartoons, especially Disney, was a way to make sense of the real world. And I thought, wow, that that's something virtual reality could do. We could put people in virtual simulations and we could have them as simple or as complex as possible and layer them in. And then the second event, again, I don't know which came first. I met Christopher from Bright Mosaic at an event we hosted. And uh, we were just brainstorming about the uses of virtual reality, especially when it came to people in the spectrum. And he was already using VR to some capacity at his center. And um, that's probably a great segue to, to go to him and let him talk about that some. Yes, please, Christopher, please tell me more. I really don't know much about you at all other than your school serves kids with autism. Well, hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So I started a company in 2016, Bright Mosaic, and we provide applied behavior analysis, speech therapy, and occupational therapy for kids on the spectrum. And like Mike said, we had already been using virtual reality, but in a pretty limited capacity. We started off with games just as like a, a reward for kids doing well during their therapy sessions. And it just naturally evolved over time to where, you know, some of the applications that I had for myself, because I was also an avid gamer. And so some of the games I had were a little more constructive. And even Google Maps, which I never would have thought in a million years would be so reinforcing for these kids. I'd find that our clients were flying around in, in Google Maps. And yeah, they would <laughs> they would work really hard during their therapy sessions to have access to this. That was, yeah, just kind of us dipping our toes in the water and it just continued from there. They started playing games like, Mike, what's the one where 
you simulate different jobs. Job simulator. Job simulator. <laughs> aptly named. <laughs> aptly named. So yeah, job simulator was really the one I think where the light bulb went off. It's like these kids are enjoying one of the jobs, for example, is a mechanic shop. And they were actually enjoying having customers come up to them and having to fix a problem, get their hands dirty in a simulated car. It, it was awesome to watch. So um, whenever I was looking on meetups, just because I was bored, I happened to see this VR meetup for, I think you named it like VR in the medical space. Yeah. Well, this particular meetup, we had different subjects. So it was just explorations in VR or something like that. I don't remember. It's been a while. But we would have a theme. And I think maybe that was the theme at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, th I, I remember seeing the word medical and, and VR and medical. Yeah. It's such an odd pairing. And so it captured my interest. I went to the meeting and, yeah, just love the way that Mike and his team had formatted this whole meeting. Never met him before. And so this, yeah, just kind of blew my mind how well this really eclectic group of people, whether it was like doctors, nurses, people like me and therapy space, just from all different walks of medical life coming together and, and Mike and his team kind of orchestrating that to see how VR could lend itself. So, Mike, your um, original intent of your VR was not and may still not be your whole focus of your company. When I met you and you brought Lisa and myself down to see your studio, you showed us how you were um, using VR to train airline mechanics because you can't make a mistake, right? You can make a mistake in the VR world, mm -hmm. but it gives you that opportunity to practice. My thought when I saw this was, frankly, it was amazing. But what I saw immediately, and Laura, I think you can probably speak to this as well, is that in the VR world, yes, it's stimulating and it's incredibly stimulating, but you don't have all the outside forces also competing for your attention. The VR world is your world. It's not your mom going, dinner's ready or cars in the street. Christopher, maybe I should direct this more to you. Do you think that VR helps a person on the spectrum focus? And then, a two-part question, I guess, do those skills, do you see them transferring into the real world? So for example, let's say the job in the VR world is washing dishes. Will the child or adult only wash dishes in VR or will that carry over? So I think yes and yes. So can it help? I guess your first, the first prong of your question was, can it help focus? And I think the answer is yes, because in virtual reality, you have absolute control. So the amount of stimuli in the environment is determined by the programmers. Mike and his team could, they could design a dishwashing program where it's, you're in a void. You're literally just in this mm -hmm. void. There's no environment other than some kind of soothing color. Mm -hmm. and something to represent a floor because you don't want it to be just floating in space. Right. But there's actually the loading screens for a lot of these Oculus and some of the other VR headsets. They already do that. It's just this void where you can see the floor, something resembling a ceiling, but otherwise it's just this really calming space. Yeah, you could drop a dishwashing station in the middle of that, anything. And so it's literally filtering out any of those real world variables and distractions. And from there, to answer your second question, is that transferable? 
I think yes, because you can start off with that really stripped down environment and then over time slowly introduce more realistic environmental that, that's what I was wondering. I, I really come to this as a blank slate, except having your experience with you. And again, just dishwashing as an example. Do you raise the level of stimuli? Let's say at first it's just the dishes, you just, just the sound of the water, just putting them in a dish rack. Do you then add like a sound of a dog barking or music in the back to trying to desensitize? Yes. In fact, that was one of the first things that we recognized and, and started tackling. We realized that the uh, sensory overload was a common issue and that we could control that in virtual reality and even take it further. So, you know, I talked about Disney films or cartoons earlier. And the reason those are effective is, and especially anime, it's very obvious the emotional response of an anime character. That's very true. I had never thought of that. So that's why there's some appeal. It's a little easier to know when an anime character is excited or crying or, or angry. So the, I, the idea that we had was to start off with these simple um, cartoon-like characters, situations, limited distractions, and then be able to layer those in over time as a way to expose the user to more and more stimuli and to get them used to it and able to cope with it. There's a lot of ideas that we haven't tried yet, and there's a lot of room for research uh, using, like in the case of communications with a character, having a large emoji symbol indicating the mood and then being able to overlay that and then have the details of the person get more realistic over time so that they start making those associations with emotions and developing social skills, being able to talk to them. Since the last time you visited, we've been using uh, artificial intelligence more and mixing it with the virtual reality environments. And part of that is automatic speech recognition and natural language processing. There's like a built-in speech therapy or speech skill improvement component. In the communication, so we can combine that with characters that have AI personas, uh, whether it's a policeman or a fireman or, or what have you, or just another friend or a parent, simulate that into the conversation. Then we can use AI like ChatGPT to give a natural language response to whatever they say and carry on a conversation. And we hope to, over time, also take that same approach where we layer it in to be very simple and then more sophisticated over time to show improvement in skills or to be able to enhance the skills over time. So how long would a person with autism need to be immersed in VR before you start seeing some improvements? I know that's a not a question that can be accurately answered, but is there any kind of projection, four months, six months, two months? We don't know. It really depends on the person. Uh-huh. What I love about this Uh, area of of study and technology implementation is that it really gets down to trying to understand the fundamentals of what learning is. Because some of the stuff that Christopher and I've worked on is just visual perception, Mm -hmm. trying to visually differentiate between different images, what's alike, what's different, being able to sort them by category, things like that, very fundamental stuff. But by visiting those fundamentals and those basics, It helps us do bigger, more sophisticated stuff like uh, life skills or job skills or some of the stuff that you were talking about earlier where we're involved in, which was enterprise training, construction, polyethylene pipe fusion, concrete mixing. There's there's an endless supply, and I 
the way my company approaches it, we've been able to just blend all this together and share the same technology, whether we're doing something very fundamental or something very sophisticated. Mike, that sounds amazing. And I can't wait for you to be able to have the ability to customize for individual needs, whether that's the adults working in our store. I mean, it would be so helpful and all kinds of other things. But Christopher, you work with uh, children that are much younger than our populations. And one of the encouraging things I heard about AI was that it can really retrain that person on the spectrum to have better eye contact, which is very upsetting to neurotypical people. I work with people on the spectrum all the time, so I don't care if they look at my shoulder or my kneecap or whatever. It doesn't bother me, but it does bother neurotypical people. Do you see any kind of vast or marked improvement in eye contact or any other specific communication skill? With the VR systems we've used, Mm -hmm. no. Because we're using pretty antiquated systems. Uh Yeah, it was the HTC Vive, Mm -hmm. first or second generation, which did not feature any kind of eye tracking. Mm. So we really don't know. When when their face is obscured by that that headset, we don't see where they're looking. And then we didn't notice any kind of significant difference when the headset came off. And this is all anecdotal because we weren't running an official... You Test know, or right, empirical right, yeah. double-blind study, uh-huh. no, nothing by that by that measure. But yeah, anecdotally, I think its greatest contribution was just motivation, and that's because these programs we were using weren't designed for actual skill building for the things we typically work on with kids, right? Because we are a medical business, and so there are standards, and mm-hmm. within those standards, you know, they break it down almost like a school curriculum, mm-hmm. where it's day by day, or not even really day by day, more accurately, just skill by skill. And there's criteria for when they graduate to the next skill. Well, those things weren't explicitly featured in in the games we were playing. Could be, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, and that's what Mike and I are working on was really like integrating those specific goals that are considered medically necessary. Mm -hmm. And therefore, at some point in the future, billable because this has to have a business component too. If if we really want it to be successful, we want parents to find it useful, kids to find it useful, and the types of therapy businesses and other industries that are committed to helping people on the spectrum, they all need to have some sort of opt-in right. for this. So yeah, I guess uh, long story short, you know, I saw that some of these really young kids had the capacity to do things like washing dishes before I actually trusted them with mm-hmm. fragile dishes and, and making smoothies and things like that. It's, oh, if it's, you know, cartoonized, for lack of better terms, if this looks like an animation, then they're willing to do things that I as a therapist, would have never imagined these kids would Or had the patience yourself to do, which is, you know, that's a real thing. I think we need to talk about when we're dealing with, as neurotypicals, dealing with people on the spectrum. It's frustrating for both of us. Having that frustration level come down is just helpful for everyone. I want to ask you a question in just a second, Laura, but just while I'm thinking about it, I want to pivot to you, Mike, because I don't remember how we met. We met through mutual somehow. But our idea when we talked together was that our adult population, many of whom are more able to communicate than 
some of the younger kids could say what was working in your program and mm-hmm. maybe what wasn't working quite so well. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to renewing our relationship with you and trying out that because I too, I'm excited and terrified about AI, but I see the implications and how much better it could make life for everyone off the spectrum or on. I'm going to pivot just for a minute and ask Laura a question about biofeedback because her son Harry has been involved in biofeedback for a couple of years now. I'd like to know first what it is and how you think it's helping, if at all, and whether you plan to continue doing it. Um, Yeah, so Harry has been doing biofeedback for about two and a half years, and we started it for trying to help his seizure disorder, which we haven't had really great luck with medication helping so far. I don't go with him to the appointments. Amy takes him, and even then, she's not in there. I have a sense of it, but it's hard to describe, but I think Mike might be able to explain a little bit about what it is. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly no expert, but my understanding of biofeedback is it's usually some kind of hardware that's computer-driven that monitors your biorhythms, your mental state, pick up on certain brain waves, your heart rate, your temperature, and it's probably just any biological thing you can imagine. But it, it gives you feedback, usually in the form of just data on a monitor that you're viewing. So then you can then change your, or try to change your mental state to change the readouts. So in the case of seizures, I'm even though I'm not experienced with that, I would speculate that there's certain indicators preceding a seizure that the biofeedback hardware can pick up on. In the case of the person that's trying to prevent a seizure, they can see those indicators starting to grow, and then they can change their mental state to try to prevent it or try to adjust it. I follow all of that except for regard to Harry. How would you communicate to Harry that if he's ang- having anxiety, he needs to slow his heart rate or well, pulse? Or how would you communicate that? The one that? example that I have seen, and I don't know exactly how this fits into the larger picture as far as addressing the seizures and the anxiety other than teaching the person how to gain a little bit more control over their sort of biological functions is having a big, not a huge screen TV, what we consider a standard TV, which is pretty big at this point, and playing a Disney movie, usually a movie that they select, and it starts off playing in the whole TV. So great. He's got a headset on with electrodes on it, and he's watching that, and then all of a sudden the movie goes down to a 16th of the screen. And of course, he wants to watch it on the whole screen. And so they tell him, make it bigger. And how does that work? I don't know. And how do you get the person to understand? It's somewhat through, as far as I can tell, just intention and wanting it to be bigger. And then it fills the screen. And then it'll it'll go back down again. And as he gets more adept at making it fill the screen, then they change the parameters so it becomes more difficult. I can understand how that ties in with VR now. I didn't really see that. But this is also a point for me to ask you about this robot that you got for Harry. Maybe none of us can remember the name. But, Mike, do you think you know the name of it? There's one robot, and I think the inventor is actually a university in Texas. I think he's from Baylor. So I'm guessing it's probably that guy. But I can't remember the robot's name. Let's just call him Timmy. 
I, I know you. your husband had, was quite excited about this purchase. Harry was going to be able to interact with this thing that didn't force him to look in the eye and all this other stuff that makes him uncomfortable. And, the, of course, the idea with all of this is to desensitize and elevate. But it didn't work for Harry. And I know he got sent back. But what do you think is lacking in both the robot and the biofeedback that VR might be able to help with? And well, y'all can answer well, this, the, too. Well, <laughs> the robot, I think, with Harry, he likes the things he likes. And it's one of those interesting things about people who are on the spectrum. They don't care about social norms and conditions. They're just themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that appeal to him, which is Disney movies. And he does watch other things now, but he was probably eight or nine before he would ever watch something that had a real live person Mm, in it. Austin's the same. And then Mm. it was Babe. Those people were okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. because you had animals who sort of behave like cartoon characters. Now he'll watch things with people. But he still really likes a lot of cartoon-based things, and there's— I'm not quite sure what the appeal of that is, but I think it's they're perhaps more predictable feeling or they're... Their emotions are so broad. I think like you were saying either. It's easy to read. I was talking to my friend Sherry, who's a licensed clinical social worker, and she has a client that has autism. And she says, I can't seem to go any farther with him. It's I don't know how to interact. I said, it's because... He's used to your mask now, if that makes any sense. He's learned how to read you. You're going to have to move him on to somebody else so he learns to read somebody else's. Because we all mask, right? We all work in here, at home, whatever. But people with autism don't mask, so they don't understand all the masks that we wear. I know that's getting off tangent a little bit. But I think it goes back to that predictability. A cartoon character is pretty much always going to look like a cartoon character unless they do something weird like to Chuck E. Cheese and make him this, Mm -hmm. like, hoodlum now. (laughs) But for the most part, they are predictable. So, And I I think maybe that was part with the robot is it wasn't— It was too— It was not emotive enough. And it also—it was not in his game plan that this was something— well, that plus, he connected with. I mean, again, you have the robot in front of him, and it may be flashing or saying the little things that it's saying every once in a while, but he's still enveloped in all that other stimuli. Right. Hearing Daryl downstairs making dinner, um, hearing the dogs bark, all the rest of that stuff. So I think VR is amazing in its ability to just catapult you into that world. If you have not experienced it, I was just amazed. I mean, we were in your your little, not little, but here's his basement, <laughs> his basement where the, the equipment was. And I swear, I was not in that room when I was experiencing the VR. So I think it helps to focus in a way those other things can't. No, I know this yep. is very, very hard. But, it's not like you can personalize everybody's but VR But you're right. Even in but... the biofeedback room, there's people walking down the hall. There's ambient noise outside. It's not that total immersion thing. Mm-hmm. There is another game that I haven't seen him do, but I remember when we were first talking about this, where they were talking about – it just kind of reminds me of some of the games that, that you all are describing – where there's like rings in the sky and then you get to pick the child or person gets to pick like one of them is a pig with wings or you could be an airplane or you could be I can't remember what the other one is but I thought the pig with wings was hilarious <laughs> and then you direct with your thoughts the pig 
through the various rings in the sky. That's that sounds kind of similar, except without the mind control to what you. <laughs> yeah, get. although the mind control. So when we start blending these technologies with biofeedback, artificial intelligence, and virtual reality, then we've got a really nice environment for learning and being able to improve skills at whatever level. So like the robot, Christopher and I've talked about this robot, and we. It's cool, but it's just what it is, and it's expensive, and it's hard. You, you really can't change it, but in the digital world, you can create an avatar, basically a virtual robot. It can look like anything, so you can have a lot of choices. If you want that robot to look like a pig with wings, it could. Or a Disney uh, character. Yeah, That's it can look I, yeah. like a Disney character. It can wear a penguin hat. It could be practically anything, but it could be something that's interesting to the person that's that's talking to it. And I think they'll be much more engaged. And it's it's digital, so it's just it can always add new features. And then with AI, especially what they call generative AI, it could potentially create stuff on the fly based on their interest. How are you at I'm asking you personally about keeping up with technology that is so incredibly rapidly changing. Have you had your eye on AI for longer than most of us have? Uh, yeah, I started, I had an AI interest in the 80s. Oh, actually. wow. <laughs> There's been waves. There was, and I had a college professor ask me what I wanted to do. He was my counselor or mentor, I forget what the term was back then, but I said, I wanted to do AI. And he goes, well, your grades aren't quite up there. Because <laughs> really, the people that were doing AI were at MIT. They were Marvin Minsky. So I was definitely no Marvin Minsky. <laughs> but, you know, fast forward here. Now it's it's a lot more accessible to people like myself that just have a curious mind and are what, what I would call technologically stubborn, meaning – even if I'm not the smartest technologist out there, I'm pretty stubborn and determined and, and interested in it. So I'll just keep digging at it till I figure it out. But yeah, it's very hard to keep up. And it's changing even more rapidly with the last year with AI has just has just been incredible. In fact, I will at this point in time I will say that any one of you should probably get an open AI account and start talking to Chat GPT. Just it can help you problem solve. It can help you be creative. It can help you brainstorm. It can help you come up with a fitness program. If you got some ideas to run by it, it's just it, even if its answers aren't always accurate, hundred percent correct, it can really help you figure out things and help you plan. It's just it's just amazing. I recommend anybody and everybody experiment with it. But yeah, I and I just wanted to clarify. Christopher's talking about the experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, about using off-the-shelf software and hardware that doesn't really address eye tracking or eye contact at all. So of course, there's not going to be any results. The newer VR hardware has eye tracking. And if you've looked at any of the announcements for the new Apple headset, it actually does a pass-through on your eyes so that mm. if you've got two people in the headsets, you can see each other and see the eyes. And so with eye tracking hardware, you you can then have a character in VR, and you will know when the person in the headset is, look, is making eye contact. You will know exactly when they're making eye contact and when they're not. And with that knowledge and that data – you can then program the software to help encourage them for more eye contact or at least develop a rhythm that is normal because people don't just dead stare at you all the time. And on the opposite, they don't just look away all the time. There's a healthy combination of the two. 
Yeah, and and I think from the medical standpoint, having VR, you can measure things to a, a degree that humans could never measure. Our job is to collect data throughout the day on the performance of children for various tasks. And if if eye contact is that target, it's really difficult to measure that to measure the duration. Mm-hmm. You know, but AI can or VR absolutely, can. Yeah. and it could even tell you to what degree. Because maybe if I'm looking at Mike right now, I'm actually looking at his ear, but it's so approximate that then, maybe mm-hmm. he thinks I'm making eye contact. So yeah, AI could with these, especially the newer headsets, and even some of the existing ones like the Oculus Two. Mm-hmm. Does that one have some eye tracking? The three will. We simulate a little bit by knowing where your headset's pointed, which is not necessarily where your eyes are pointed, so it's a rough approximation, but we at least know that their head is oriented in the right direction. This reminds me one time, this is something you told me, Jamie, when, when you visited me before, and you, you said something about you've you've never felt like, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm probably paraphrasing, but you never felt like you had a... a realistic, in-depth conversation with your adult daughter. Is that correct? Still have not. Yeah. Going on 26 years. <laughs> so it is my hope through um, technological research and innovation and development that that could happen, or at least steps in that direction. I think any improvement or any any more meaningful interaction and conversation, I would say with 100% certainty that that is – in the realm of improvement, it may not be, you know, where we ideally want it, but I think maybe using this technology, let's say, what's your daughter? What kind of things does she like? What kind of characters or animals? Oh, she or, loves Barbies. She loves... Okay, let's roll with Barbie. In VR, you could be Barbie. And if she loves to talk to Barbie, even though she sees Barbie and it's you, I think maybe the lines could start to blur and maybe, you know, as Barbie... You know, all her could hang out and go virtual shopping together or, or hang out at the, what's the Malibu Beach House. Yeah. I would love I would love that. And the interesting thing, and I think Austin, my daughter, would be a great candidate for this because she has an incredible vocabulary. Honestly, better than most of the college students I taught. But she also has elaborate systems where her Barbies are, they're doing things. They have, there's like scenes all over the upstairs of our house that I can't touch because they're a part of the story. And I will hear her upstairs talking and using different voices. So she understands what a conversation is. But she, if you were to talk to her today, it would be, hi, Mike, Christian, how are you? And Mm -hmm. then it would be, Travi and I, blah, 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 blah. And it would make no sense to you whatsoever. But it's the disconnect between her knowing how to have a conversation and not being actually have one is very puzzling to me. And here's a a kind of a question that I was going to ask earlier, but I'm going to ask it now. Austin would love to talk to Barbie or Big Bird or Elmo. Are you going to run into licensing problems if you try to create these characters? Oh, absolutely. That's what I was worried about. <laughs> no <laughs> yeah, doubt. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. To me, the, the the scenes you showed us were great, and I think she would warm up to them. But if Barbie could talk to her or Elmo could talk to her, it would probably for well, for Harry as well. You've seen these AI apps where they change your appearance uh-huh. to look like Barbie or look like a 
Disney character, but it's like enough off your version of Barbie. Uh-huh. It's you looking like Barbie, and so that might be enough. Maybe doesn't have to be maybe the official Barbie, it's, which it's, has changed a lot over the years anyway. I know, yeah, I know how I say this because I know how litigious Disney is and protective mm-hmm. of their their characters. Oh, yeah. So even changing them somewhat, I mean. I, I don't know. I, I was just curious about that because I know that would be a big response mm-hmm. point. And Disney, for some reason, you ask 98% of the population, young or old, on autism, they love Disney. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why they favor that over so much else, but they do. And Thomas the freaking train. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thomas the train. <sighs> yeah, I think – some would be easier than others, like the Disney princess example. Just mm-hmm. those are generic princessy. Yeah. yeah, just yeah. put a tiara and mm-hmm. some cartoonish uh-huh. uh, dresses on. But Elmo and some Mickey of those more and, yeah. like unique characters that'd mm-hmm. be harder. Given those limitations for characters, and um, there may be some get arounds, but. How can we go about involving artists in our own community? I'm sure you know that's a big passion of mine. Mm-hmm. My firm belief is that most people on the spectrum are incredibly creative. I don't know what it is about being on the spectrum, maybe because their focus is uh, more honed in. I believe everyone is an artist, not just people with on the spectrum. But it, there does seem to be a heart for this community. I think lots of artists are themselves neurodiverse so that they identify with people on the spectrum. What can we do to bring artists into our fold and help us if you want help? Oh, yeah. And I think it might solve those some of those issues. Um, so it's called user-generated content. Uh, one of the examples that people are most familiar with is called game modding, where people mod video games to with their own themes, with their own characters. Then there's general playgrounds like Roblox and Minecraft, where people can go in and create their own scenarios and their own characters and do their own programming. So I believe that the way to address that is that whatever tools or software that we start providing in VR, we have a component to allow creators to add their own content. This could be creators like parents, teachers, therapists, or people on the spectrum themselves. And as you know, a lot of people or certain certain amount of the population are very artistic. Some of them are really good programmers. They could team up and create content. And then if they're creating their own content and we're giving them really good tools to create quality content, then they could create their own version of Barbie or their own version of characters that they like like their own talking trains or whatever they're into, they can create. And I think that would be one way to, going back to the robot, that's the way to create a robot that you're interested in as opposed to just this mm-hmm. generic one that's of no interest. And there's another really unique way that Mike and his team, I think, could incorporate art. And that's because the VR software they've developed doesn't just work with a VR headset. It also works in tandem with tablets. Oh, interesting. And the reason we even went that direction was because at my therapy centers and most therapy centers, every therapist walks around with an iPad. Think about that as their Mm -hmm. clipboard. Whereas a nurse has a clipboard and all kinds of papers, we all have iPads. And throughout the day, we're collecting data on that. Or sometimes we need to use it for a camera, what have you. Mike and his team have bridged the gap between that that headset and the iPad to where I, as a therapist, I'm controlling the session and everything that the child who is in the virtual reality environment, everything they experience in there 
can be controlled by me on the iPad. Oh, wow. So I can just push buttons and say, hey, let me just search really fast for a red ball. Mike and I have worked together on creating this huge repository of different 3D and two-dimensional assets. And so I can search for it because we have different tags to say, okay, this is round, it's a ball, it's a toy, it's red, whatever. So you can, you can assign attributes to all these items quickly find them, and then with a touch of a couple buttons, I can drop it into the world for that child to interact with in VR. With that technology, even though it wasn't our original intention, you could also import two-dimensional images that the child has drawn or an outside artist has drawn. Uh Uh, An adult on the spectrum, if they like drawing or painting, now you can import that and it's an object that either the person in virtual reality can hold and move around and interact with, Or even in the virtual world, you can also have a picture hanging on a wall. And even though it's not something you can rip off the wall and interact with, you could have this image that you import automatically insert itself into that picture frame on the wall. So you're in a house and all the paintings on the wall are local artists. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, Austin would love that because she, she and her boyfriend, Travi, draw these flat scenes on paper, and then she animates them by putting characters on top of them. If mm-hmm. she could do that in the virtual world, that would have a cleaner house for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the near future, AI can take that flat drawing and extrapolate it and create a little 3D world out of it. Oh, wow. That's going to be, be amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. amazing for her. I wanted to ask you one thing when I was reading up, researching for this discussion today, was that VR and autism has been employed to help people overcome phobias. I guess this isn't necessarily exclusive to autistic people, but have you thought about any of those kinds of things? Because as Laura knows, autistic people live in a very fearful world because it doesn't make much sense to them. So for example, one of our members is terrified of thunderstorms. Another is absolutely terrified of dogs. One is afraid of birds for heaven's sakes, which is fun, let me tell you. (laughs) Dogs a little easier, birds a problem. Is that news to you or have you dealt with that? We've explored some of that too. And it, it goes back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier about monitoring anxiety related to that as fears or phobias. And it's the same approach where you expose them to their fear or phobia in various forms over time. So you wouldn't put them in a full-blown thunderstorm if they were afraid of lightning and thunder. But you might put them in a simpler environment with some cartoon clouds and lightning. And then if they happen to be using, you know, someday they'll have a watch that can tell, that can monitor anxiety. And we could Mm. talk to that. But for now, somebody like Christopher is sitting there with an iPad asking them questions or observing their behavior. And they can know whether they're getting anxious or not. And they can know when to make it more severe or less severe and monitor that way. And that's really just in the world of psychology, you know, it's that uh, aversion therapy, just exposing them to their fears, whether it's flying or spiders or... That's the whole premise of my foundation is Mm -hmm. that constant social immersions. And it it works. I'm no psychologist. I don't have any degrees, but I can tell you, oh, my gosh, Harry in particular, not just because he's been with us. But one of the reasons is that we do go out and we 
he sees that he's okay. We've gotten him to take off his headphones on a number of occasions, which is amazing. So, Mike, you're doing wonderful work, and I cannot wait to work with you more. But can you tell me, is this type of thing, VR, (laughs) technical jargon, Mm -hmm. being done other places in the world? And do you feel a cooperative spirit with these people, or do you feel like it's race to the finish, or is it both? It's both. There's companies in China and France and Spain, and it's just throughout the world that are working on various aspects of that. We have a client that works uh, with the elderly and they have a Spanish partner that's doing some similar things when it comes to skill-based learning and safety in the home and assisted living type things. And there's a little bit of crossover with what we do. But I want to speak to the global aspect a little bit more in in a different light. One of our partners that we've been working with is Learning Times, and they have about 10, maybe 15 years of experience using a online game called Second Life. Oh, I know about Second Life. (laughs) Yeah. And so they use Second Life, and they've worked with the New York Department of Education, and they'll simulate job situations and try to train on job skills or life skills. Just It involves a lot of um, actors online, people that are playing these roles. So there's no AI or scripted, but the playground, the digital playground that that Second Life is gives them a lot of assets to play with. So we've been working with them to start applying this stuff more specifically to people on the spectrum to teach life skills and job skills. So more, more, you know, kind of balancing out with Christopher, we've been working with the younger folks. Uh, with learning times, it's more the adults or people that are graduating high school or wanting to enter the workforce. And so we have a grocery shopping simulator that does two things. One, it teaches them how to shop and how to look up items on a list, how to ask for help. So they'll talk to an AI character that works there and ask them where stuff is. And then you switch and suddenly you're an employee in the grocery store and you learn how to stock or you learn how to face items on the shelf. And also a customer will come up and ask you for help and you've got to engage with them using uh, automatic speech recognition and stuff like that. This is all multi-user online. So what that means is uh, multiple people could join in, and one of them could be an observer and a parent. There could be multiple uh, young adults, but it doesn't matter where they are in the world. They could join in together, just like on Second Life. It breaks down barriers where it doesn't matter, you know, oh, I've got to... I got to be in Dallas to get this kind of mm-hmm. help or assistance. No, with this online technology, as long as you've got an internet connection, you can be anywhere in the world. And so I think that really speaks to the global possibility. I think that's one wonderful use of technology. I mean, I know there's terrifying things about AI, but there's just so many positives that a show I would like to do in the near future is how our services for autism around the world and I'm guessing not great. So no. um, can you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, a little bit. I, I don't know too much, but from what I've heard, it's on the rise in countries like India. In fact, a lot of our clients here in the U.S. are originally from India. Mm-hmm. So there's an awareness growing there. I've even heard some in like Saudi Arabia because I have a, a partner in a different business who lives in Saudi Arabia and his son is autistic or on the spectrum, excuse me. And that's how I met him. He was interested in farming and his son was on the spectrum. And those are my two businesses. So we got really close and he's been all over the world, originally from India, then moved to Saudi Arabia. And so he's he's experienced it as a parent mm. overseas and in countries that aren't 
you know, it's not Europe. It's not what some people would call first world, but still there's an awareness growing. And here, insurance pays for a lot of it until they turn 10. Mm-hmm. Overseas, it's all private pay as far as I know. So the people are aware of it, but the institutions have to catch up. I think probably a good point is that even if you do have money, there may not be services available to you, which is why I started my foundation. And to this day, six years later, we're kind of it for adults, Hmm. unless you want a day hab or our kids have aged out of your program. But what I think is exciting about this, this new way to bring the world together is those kids don't have to suffer or not, or just exist, you know, without, without connection. So, Um, I get a little bit or sometimes a lot of pushback on this philosophy is that, unfortunately, the world is not autistic for our autistic kids. And I know there are autistic people who think, I don't care, the world needs to adapt to us, but I don't think that's the way it's going to be. And I think the better we are able to integrate our kids into a neurotypical world, the more success we'll have. Because we are just now getting to a public consciousness of what autism even is, just barely. So now we're working on autism acceptance, which is what our groups are working on. But still, it's going to be a long, 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 long time before autistics can go out in the world and feel completely comfortable. So I think our best bet is improving those social skills, the eye contact, the self-regulatory skills that we all need to survive in the world. So I think VR is an incredible way. I'm so happy to reconnect with you, Mike. It's been something I've been wanting to do for a long time. But tell me, if you could, how you think our adults might be able to help your program how it could be adapted for them, how they could be helpful to younger children. and Oh, yeah. So, yeah, your adults could definitely take advantage of what we are building as clients, but they could also contribute to testing, giving us user feedback on ideas, on what resonates with them, what doesn't. I think a lot of this is very exploratory. It's a lot of R&D, and I think one of the best ways to get useful feedback is direct to the target audience. It's, you know, just, hey, what do you think? You know, and getting a good sample of that, getting a good uh, consensus if possible. I, I think they'll be really useful to you, not only in their ability to communicate that, but a lot of things like eye movement, they're going to have that same difficulty mm-hmm. a kid would, mm-hmm. but maybe they'll keep it on longer. I'm thinking of like maybe six people in our group that could really be helpful to you in that way. Do you ever see the headsets being more comfortable? Oh, yes. Because it seems to me that that's everything else has been sized down and the, the headsets are still enormous. Yeah. It's been a technological challenge for companies to fit everything, all the power that's needed in these headsets. So it's been slow, but every iteration, the headsets are smaller and more comfortable. Apple's new headset, it's not quite there yet, but again, it's another step of improvement. This is going to sound funny, but I have an augmented reality monocle. <laughs> that um, I, I, it's in my car, but it'll f- clip on glasses. And so, man, I look like a super cyborg <laughs> nerd with it. But there was this same monocle. Some hackers created a dating app with it. And what I mean is they hooked it up to ChatGPT to tell them what to say on a date or to give them oh, more wow. social skills. And these oh, are just wow. regular people. These I say the regular people. These are nerds that felt like they needed more yeah. social skills. But extrapolate that. Think about hardware that's a little more integrated and less noticeable 
that you can carry around all the time, and it acts like your companion. It's AI that you can ask questions of and get feedback on, and maybe it can help you navigate through the world. Suddenly, I think people, no matter where they are on the spectrum, might have a more level playing field if they've got these AI assistants helping them along the way and, and making things more informative and more interesting for them. It's going to be pretty interesting, but I see that as being one of the real level playing fields. That's the AI is going to be great for us versus kill us. Uh, <laughs> That's so take. interesting because yeah. I was thinking about a book that Temple Grandin, who's one of the most recognizable names in autism, uh, wrote a book several years ago with another autistic person about trying to teach people on the spectrum sort of the rules of social engagement. It took them years to write it. Because we think that the rules are very straightforward because we've grown up in that ocean, swimming in that ocean, and so we've learned them. But there's so many exceptions. Things like it's really important to be honest, except for all the times when it's really important to not be mm -hmm. honest because that can be hurtful to somebody. Mm -hmm. And if somebody who had some deficits in not just understanding that naturally, had an interactive way to have some prompts around that and some assistance in the moment, rather than trying to carry all this around in their head and remember all the exceptions. I think that would be extraordinary. I think that's amazing. I've never so heard of helpful. that. So helpful. Cyrano. Yeah, ear, ear. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, have, we have this, I, I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's adorable and he doesn't have very many words. Every time he comes into our shop, it's Hello, Jamie. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Out. <laughs> How are you? Good. I am fine. <laughs> but if if the voice said to pause for a minute, maybe he would pause. But mm -hmm. and Austin too. It's if she started to go on about Travi, maybe the little voice could say, "Hey." Why don't you ask them, how are you? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I don't know. But I, that's really exciting. I didn't so, even know about that. Yeah, the technology exists today. It's just not well integrated and friendly. In the VR headset question is a great example of that. You know, it's VR is here today. It's very helpful, but it's not as accepted yet because it's not comfortable to wear and it's not as readily available. So it's just a matter of meeting those even fashion, meat and fashion requirements, you know, and am I really willing to wear this? I'm Well, I'm a weirdo. I might walk around with a monocle on my glasses, <laughs> but most people are not going to do that. <laughs> I think that was one of the objections to Google Glass, right? Oh, yeah, it absolutely. Just looked, it, looked, it just looked so dumb. Yes. But it, it's getting better, right? Yeah. Everything. I remember when I was a kid, I'd visit my dad. He worked at a bank, and their computers were entire rooms. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. And, and each section, which was like an eight-by-eight massive thing only did one function. So I, I think it's it's certainly within the next 10, I shouldn't make any predictions. That's more of like <laughs> yeah. Mike's domain, but I struggle to imagine a world in the next 10 to 20 years where Google Glasses don't look like Ray-Bans. And it's going to be augmented reality, which is just another step towards that bridging. You were asking earlier, is this transferable? So going from a completely obscuring headset where you can't see the actual world to the real world, well, AR is already a bridge because you see the actual world in real time and then there's just an overlaid animation and things. So we're really close to that. Of all the predictions of what the future would be, you know, I remember going to Disney World when I was a kid and <laughs> the hall of the future or what have you. Well, there's no flying cars, but I don't think anyone could have imagined the world that we live in. And it's 
I'm really excited about the future, a little bit terrified, but more excited, <laughs> especially for people on the spectrum and people with disabilities. This helps bring the world closer when so much of it has been out of reach for so many for so long. Thank you all my guests for being here today. It was such an interesting discussion and I can't wait to have you guys back on if you will come back. So if you would just remind our guests once again who you are and your company name and we'll be able to find them on our webpage very soon. Oh, yeah. Mike Christian from the future. And, and Jamie, it's been my absolute pleasure. It's been very fun. Christopher Brown of Bright Mosaic Autism Therapy Centers. But then I, I don't think we mentioned at any point that Mike and I have a co-endeavor, which is Bright Future combination of combination of bright mosaic and from the future so, so you're just going to confuse me for the rest we, of my life yeah, yeah, yeah just, christopher just made that up to <laughs> yeah so bright future vr is the software we're working on for mm. people on the spectrum mm -hmm. and i'm laura likes mother of harry thanks for listening learn more by visiting our website at austinsautisticadventures.org and follow us on facebook